0: Welcome back to anchored and always I am so excited for today's episode in episode one you heard my story and today you get to hear my husband Josh's story and I think when you hear his story and mine you will get a better idea of our heart for ministry for recovery and hope in Jesus and I am just so proud of him and the work that he has put into his recovery and his journey. And his story is just a true testament to what God can do in the life of someone who is fully surrendered to him and is willing to put the work into their recovery and their journey. So with that, I am going to turn the mic over to my amazing husband, Josh, so that you all can hear his story today.
1: Well, hey, before we begin, I just wanted to say a big thank you to my wonderful wife, Katie, for even allowing me to share my testimony on this uh, venue in Anchored and Always and to be a part of her listening audience. Uh, and so with that, Katie, thank you so much. And uh, we'll jump right in. Uh, but before I begin my testimony, there's a video by Jonathan Trailer called You Get the Glory for This. And the reason I even bring it up is because it's at the heart of my testimony. Just that God would indeed get the glory for this. So if you haven't checked out that video, I'd encourage you to check it out even before you listen to the rest of this testimony, just because it does speak to the heart of why I'm sharing my story. With that, let's jump right in. Friends, I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ who's in recovery from alcohol and prescription medication addiction and who still struggles with lust, pride, and grief. And my name's Josh. You know, I've heard many testimonies since being in recovery, and many of them begin much the same way with some incident early on, whether it's trauma, issues with parents, abuse, or whatever type of event is usually a beginning point for that individual story of hurts, habits, and hang-ups. Well, friends, this is not my story. See, I didn't have a sordid upbringing, thank God, suffered no major abuses growing up, and didn't have to deal with any major losses for a large part of my early life. Yet somehow, I still ended up on a cold floor of a drug and alcohol treatment center on the verge of losing everything. But more on that later. I was born and raised in Lansing, Michigan. Charlie and Lorene uh, Thornhill were my parents. And yes, they stayed together. They had marriage issues like most, but they were together, which is uncommon these days. So I guess I was blessed from the beginning. I have a, a younger brother, five years younger than me, Caleb. My early years I think would be considered typical or perhaps ideal is a better word. See, my mother was the nurturer, always ready and willing to help with homework and school projects and made dinner. And my father was more of a tough love kind of guy, but taught me valuable lessons like hard work, determination, and grit. We never attended church growing up, but I often remember my dad saying, hey, we need to be in church. But that time never came. My parents certainly weren't against God, but they never spoke of him much. As a matter of fact, most of my thoughts on God were formed by the movies I'd seen. Ten Commandments being the main one. You remember, the one with Charlton Heston. I can't tell you how many sleepless nights I had, imagining a burning bush on my bedroom floor, but that's as far as I got in my youth. See, my parents worked full-time, so my brother and I spent a fair amount of time in daycare and doing stuff that boys usually do. We played video games, played outside a lot, built forts, rode bikes, hung out with friends, and then there were sports. From my earliest memories, I've always been involved in some type of sport. See, my father was an All-American National Championship linebacker from Michigan State University. And so growing up in his shadow, I would constantly hear stories of my dad and his accomplishments. So from a young age, I always felt this need to be seen as capable and accomplished. And I suspect this is where my people-pleasing began to grow. My middle school years were awkward, to say the least. If you can imagine, I did have hair back then. My dad used to love to put Vaseline in it and make my hair part right on the side. And it would literally stay like that for the next two or three weeks. We didn't have a lot of money, though my parents did their best. I often went to school in sweatpants and some sort of t-shirt with Payless shoes. I always wanted to fit in with the cool kids, but really never managed. I would say those three years were typical for a lot of kids in middle school. However, there is one event that opened Pandora's box, so to speak, and it was in 7th or 8th grade during a summer where my parents had gone to work, my brother was in daycare, and I was home alone. For whatever reason, that day I began looking around the house, not for anything in particular, but what I found would transform my mind forevermore. See back in our laundry room in the basement next to the washer and dryer, I found an old bag. I still remember exactly what it looked like, and it had VHS tapes in it. Being the curious type, I of course grabbed one, and yes, I still remember the name of the movie, which really should have given me some idea of what was on it, but honestly I wasn't sure. So in that moment, I was exposed to pornography for the very first time, and its hooks did run deep inside me. Little to my knowledge, the damage that this addiction would cause would be devastating. But in the moment, at 13 or 14, it really seemed like the normal, cool thing to do. In high school, I went from the kid who never fit in to a kid who resembles somebody from the movie Varsity Blues. Things were really changing for me. I found that if you're a successful athlete, people seemed to like me more, and I was successful. I loved the attention, although I used false humility to pretend that I didn't. I was living the dream in high school. I had friends, popularity, and even had two girlfriends in high school. No, not at the same time, but still, I was feeling myself at this point. Looking back, however, a dark pattern was emerging. See, I destroyed both these early relationships I had with these women, not because I was necessarily mean to them, but I had a need I couldn't see at the time, but I do see it now. I had two issues. One, the grass always looked greener to me where I wasn't standing, and two, I had this need to be lusted after. And so this led to cheating on both of them, and because I was a people pleaser, I had this weird, twisted fear of hurting someone, so instead of being honest with them and telling them we needed to break up, I would try to lie and cover up the truth which made things so much worse. But you know what they say, third time's a charm, right? Well, in the winter of 1997, I met my third girlfriend, Katie, and as you might have guessed, she would later become my wife. I met Katie while working at the YMCA, and yes, she's the one who asked me out. Okay, actually, I was too shy to ask her out. She was a Christian, and after a few times of hanging out, she told me she couldn't be serious with someone who was not. And so what did I do? Yep, you guessed it. I went to church the very next opportunity. That single decision would turn out to be the most important decision I ever made in my life, because it was that decision that led me to ask Jesus into my heart. And while I did, with full belief, ask Jesus into my heart, Romans 10.9 says, if you openly declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's interesting, Paul writes, Jesus is Lord which, in the context, Jesus is supposed to be the owner, the one who has control over the person, the master, so to speak. I knew I needed Jesus. However, it would be many more years before I knew what it meant to allow Jesus to be Lord, Master, or Boss over my whole life. However, there was a change in my life that was undeniable. My friends, teammates, and family took notice of the change in me pretty quickly. Probably the biggest change in me was my mouth. Before I met Jesus, using certain words was just who I was, and kind of expected when you play football. But literally overnight my words changed. And it really shouldn't come as a surprise, because 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away, behold, the new things have come. So here I was, senior year of high school, and from the outside I had it all. I had friends, I had popularity, though mostly from football good grades, and most importantly, I had Jesus. Although, I still carried with me this deep-seated issue with self-esteem, a need to be wanted or lusted after, and an identity problem that was really wrapped up in being an athlete. Of course, I didn't see my issues as I do now, so life moved on. I went to college on a full-ride scholarship for football, and as you might imagine, my issues in college were only magnified. The Bible says, So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. In college, I was trying to live in two worlds to please two sets of people. On one hand, I wanted Jesus, so I had on-campus Bible studies, went to church faithfully on weekends, even after games. I joined athletes in action and even spoke at events to share my faith. However, the other side of me, the side that fully identified as a stereotypical jock, loved the attention, especially from women, The roar of the crowds, the newspaper and TV interviews, I loved it all. But this fed a growing sense of pride that usually came out as false humility and also filled a need to be lusted after. And it wasn't good enough to have all this, including a great girlfriend. I wanted more, and the grass still looked greener everywhere except where I was standing. There were times that the tension between these two lives showed up, and unfortunately it was Katie that often got hurt. As college drew to a close, my success on the field grew, and I was eventually drafted by the Detroit Lions. But after several injuries in my short NFL career, I decided it was time to retire. Looking back, who I saw myself as for the majority of my life up until this point was an athlete, and now that identity was gone. This created a huge void in my life that Christ wanted to fill, but I couldn't see it at the time. So life moved on. After retirement, most of Katie and I's friends were getting married. So I figured this is the next thing I probably should do. I know, very romantic. And, I figured as a bonus, getting married would at least solve solve my issues I had with lust and pornography, right? Nope. So in 2003, Katie and I married and life from the outside seemed to be going well. We, I mean, we had good jobs, we went to church, we had close friends, close family, we had money, we were living the dream, as they say. In 2006, we had our first child, Hannah. We had everything we wanted, but later that, later that same year, my worldview, a worldview that believed that the storms of life were supposed to be for other people, or at least not for people who were trying to follow Christ, that worldview collapsed. In 2006, my father passed away suddenly. This man, who I owed much of my athletic success, was gone in an instant, with no chance to ever share how I really felt about him. This moment changed me. I was so angry at God. I felt so much pain in that moment. It was then and there I decided that if I have to experience this sort of pain, even after accepting you, Jesus, then I choose to do what makes Josh happy from this point on. You know, I wonder how many people have heard this advice before. Do what makes you happy. This philosophy turned out to be catastrophic in my life. See, up until this point in my life, I rarely used alcohol, but after this, I didn't see the point in restricting myself anymore. I mean, I wasn't training for anything. I knew other Christians who drank, and honestly, it made me feel better act funnier, be more social, what did it really matter? And so the proverbial match was thrown onto a tinderbox that was full of identity issues, porn issues, lust issues, shallow faith, and a grieving heart. I bet you can see where this is going. I was in graduate school at the time my dad passed, and now with a do-what-makes-you-happy mindset, I began to attend more late night study sessions, hang out at the bar more, and interact more with women who would listen to my story. All the while Katie was left at home to work and care for Hannah. This of course led to my first affair. And as I look back at this, it really hurts to think about all the pain that I caused Katie and all the relationships I damaged. And unfortunately it wouldn't be the last time. The only good thing I can see looking back is that although I had begun to turn my back on God, He never once turned His back on me. I knew deep down He wanted something better for me, better for Katie and I, better than a broken marriage and a life full of lies and addictions. I eventually told Katie of the affair and we went to counseling, which helped, but the issues that were at the core were never addressed the unresolved grief, the anger towards God, the missing identity, and the huge lack of surrender to him in my life. But life did get better for a while. We had our second child, Isaac. I had a good job after graduation, and things seemed again to be going well, at least from the outside. In 2011, an old back injury from football returned which required spinal injections, physical therapy, and yes, you guessed it, pain medication. The way I felt on pain medication was the way I thought I should be able to feel every second of the day. I mean, small, meaningless jobs around the house, they became fun. Parenting wasn't so stressful anymore, and the grief in losing my dad was fading. And over all that, I was out of pain. I had found the answer, or so I thought. I remember the very day I decided I would continue to use this medication to fill that emptiness, that void that was deep inside me. And so it began with just using on the weekends to unwind, but that soon progressed to using daily just to get me through the day. I also realized that this good feeling was enhanced by using alcohol. And again, that began with me trying to control my use. Using on only certain days, then drinking only certain types of alcohol, then adjusting the amount, until it really didn't matter when, where, or how much. I'm embarrassed to say that this would even spill over into small group gatherings for church. It was all spiraling out of control. God's Word says in 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Little did I know at the time, but what was happening to me as I self-medicated this deep void in me is that I was becoming numb to the external reality of the enemy seeking to devour me, and I was primed for the picking. While all this was happening internally, externally, I was able to hide my sin. We still went to church, went to work, did all the things that families do. Meanwhile, I was covering up this growing addiction and I was good at it too, see. I was way too smart, too strong to let this thing control me. After all, I was a former NFL football player. I have a college degree. I studied medicine. I knew the effects of drugs and alcohol. And I counseled patients on the very same thing. And overall, I was a Christian, so surely I could control this. But over the next five years, my addiction would spiral further out of control. I literally tried everything, or at least I tried, thought I tried everything to stop the cycle. Aside from the things I mentioned earlier, I tried changing location, which is partly why we moved from Michigan to Tennessee. I tried changing jobs. And during this time, we even had our third son, Marcus. So I hoped that this perhaps would be enough to help me change. It wasn't. But the truth was, I didn't know how to live life any other way. I was scared to let go of the thing that brought me some type of relief over all my issues. Paul states in his letter to the Romans, and I'm paraphrasing here, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodly and all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Therefore God gave them over to the lusts of their heart, to impurity. They, or I, had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. For this reason God gave them, or me, over to degrading passions. Just as I did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave me over to a depraved mind to do those things that are not proper. The dictionary defines depraved as morally corrupt and wicked. The reason I bring this up is to make the point that I had spent so much time in addiction that I believe I was given over to this depraved mindset. I mean, how else could a person get so comfortable lying with those closest to them, or taking advantage of family members to further my habit, or, or using their unemployment um, to write false prescriptions, or stealing from individuals, or having multiple inappropriate relationships with women? Or hiding bottles of alcohol around the house or drinking and driving how could i have literally gotten here but like a filter on snapchat i tried to filter all this out so you would only see what i wanted you to see but that time was over the walls were closing in katie knew there was a problem others were suspecting but i couldn't stop my life was out of control and unmanageable it was my wife that finally had enough She told my employer about the problem in a last desperate attempt to save me, our marriage, and our family. I was sat down and given the choice either go to treatment or lose everything. I knew I didn't have much longer before I was either in jail, divorced, or dead. And so, what did I really have to lose at this point? And it was in that moment, with one free will choice of surrender, that God began to go to work. I agreed to a three month stay. In a treatment center in Warrior, Alabama. What a name for a location. Warrior, although I sure didn't feel like one. It was on the floor of a solitary detox room that I finally said, God, you win. I've tried it my way. I surrender to whatever you want to do with me here. And it was obvious from that moment I showed up that God was already at work. It was there I was introduced to the 12 steps of recovery and was able to take a long, hard look at who I was what I had done, the people I hurt, and the reasons behind it. It was there I finally realized that at the the center of all my issues was a void, a huge spiritual void that I had been attempting to fill with you name it. People-pleasing, fame, money, drugs, alcohol, women, all in an attempt to fill a void that Jesus wanted to fill. The problem was now that I had so much guilt and shame and other junk built up from my past that it was blocking me from a real relationship with Him. Now, to tell you everything of what happened during my time in Warrior would take a while, but the most life-changing thing I learned in my time there was how to apply God's Word through surrender, learned by the process of the the Twelve Steps. In secular recovery, the steps center around a higher power, and the book they use called the Big Book. But I knew there was a true higher power, Jesus, and I knew there was a big, big book, the Bible. But as I worked the steps and read the AA Big Book, it was clear that the Bible had been the foundation of even secular recovery. And so I was all in from the start, and with Christ guiding me, I trusted everything to working in the steps. I will tell you, the most transformative steps for me were steps four and five, It was during my moral inventory and confession that all of me was finally revealed to another person. Things I thought I would go to my grave with were now out in the open to someone I trusted. The Bible says if we confess our sins to each other, we can be healed. See, Christ had forgiven me long ago. However, what I needed was healing. And working my moral inventory and confessing it brought healing in ways I could not imagine. I had done the hard work to remove much of the garbage that was blocking God from working effectively in my life. From that moment of healing, I knew Jesus wanted my whole life in full surrender. I knew what I had done, and who I was didn't matter anymore, because it is and was always about what He did for me. He had given me a new identity. And with my new identity and working the program, I did walk out of that treatment center a new man, and lived happily ever after. Okay, you know as well as I do, that's not how the story ends. Although, I will testify to the fact, life did indeed indeed get better, and the promises of God did begin to take shape. Joel 2.25 says, I will restore to you the years that the locust ate. I began working the CR program with a sponsor, and with a humble heart, I saw God restore friendships that I had lost. I saw him move in my job. And was even welcomed back with open arms. God had given me a direction and a purpose. There's a saying in recovery if you make God first, everything else becomes first class. This was no truer than in my marriage. God softened my wife's heart, and she saw the true change in me, walked by my side, and never gave up on me, although I knew she wanted to. She is the huge reason I am able to give this testimony today. Never in my life could I have imagined a day where my wife would look at me, the same person who lied to her, cheated on her, did horrible things to her, and have her say, I want what you have. Friends, only Jesus can work a miracle like this. Hear me when I say, only Jesus. And I can tell you, Katie did join a step study and worked the Celebrate Recovery program and has now found freedom and victory from her own hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And what a blessing it is to be walking in marriage with someone who speaks the same language of recovery as you. Together, Katie and I found a passion for Celebrate Recovery. And as we grew together in marriage and recovery, it became clear that we wanted others to know how to overcome their hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And so with a few close friends in recovery, together we began Celebrate Recovery at Grace Community Church, where we're able to serve as ministry leaders. We have had a front row seat, seeing lives changed on a weekly basis as we continue sponsoring people and leading step studies. Glory to God alone, I wish I had time to tell you of how God worked in us and through us to make all this happen, but trust me when I say God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. I did leave out one thing, though, as I shared how Celebrate Recovery came to be at Grace Community Church. Someone once told me that early in recovery, that some of our hardest trials will come long into the road of recovery. It was actually about two years into recovery for me. In 2018, just as Katie and I were considering bringing Celebrate Recovery to our home church and life was going well. We were actually on our annual camping trip as a family, so Hannah, Isaac, and Marcus, and of course Katie. And it was, then we noticed something strange about our five-year-old son, Marcus. Normally, he's the one with the engine that never stopped. He was the one always into something, always on the move, full of life and energy. But on this day in the summer of 2018, we noticed he was a bit more tired than usual. And we had noticed some odd things. See, his hands w- would shake when he went to try to open a door or hold a pencil, and I remember playing catch with him, and he literally couldn't lift his eyes to see the ball. And after a while, we were concerned enough to bring him to the doctors. At first, we were told it may be a virus and it should clear on its own, but to be safe, they had ordered an MRI. Then, while in Michigan on a family vacation, the call came that would change our lives forever that would test our faith and push my recovery to the breaking point your son has cancer and not just any cancer a rare brain cancer with no opportunity for surgery and little to no hope for survival we were shattered we cried we hugged we asked the normal questions why how come why not someone else But from the very start, we promised each other that we would do whatever it took to fight for Marcus. We still believed that the same God, who saw us through so much, would see us through this. Looking back, it was obvious God knew the storm was coming. He knew the exact moment, and in His wisdom, He knew what Katie and I both would need. The dots were beginning to connect. See, if Marcus had been diagnosed just a little earlier in my act of addiction, Well, I promise you I wouldn't be standing here, or sitting here giving my testimony. I would most likely be dead. But God knew we would need an army to walk through the fire. My forever family in Celebrate Recovery was a large part of that army. Hebrews 6.19 was our battle cry. We have this hope as a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. We had to be anchored in, and we had to stay anchored in to God and recovery. Over the next two years, we would watch as the cancer slowly stripped Marcus of everything. He gradually lost the use of his hands, then the ability to speak, and then eventually to even walk. Yet, I'm not exaggerating here. Not once did Marcus complain. He simply moved on to the things he could do and never once asked, why is this happening to me? When faced with some scary procedure or chemotherapy, he would simply say, Let's do this. Marcus was called home to heaven just a few short months ago. And in the and given the pain we endured, and still endure today, I tell you, there's no earthly way I should be sitting here giving a testimony. My marriage should have collapsed. My faith should be shattered. I should have relapsed. And Hannah and Isaac should be angry. And I definitely shouldn't be able to turn back to the God who allowed this and say, I still trust you. But it's 2 Corinthians 12, 9 at work, which says, He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. Sufficient to say, Christ's power rests in me. And that's why I'm still able to stand today. To tell you all the stories of God's work through this dark journey would take much longer. But we are still anchored in today. And we are now more confident than ever that this program of recovery is not just for the alcoholic or addict. It's for everyone. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Every one of us has trouble. And it takes on many forms and faces, but it's trouble just the same. Jesus went on to say, take heart, because I have overcome the world. If you're listening to this uh, today, would you consider anchoring in? Anchor into Jesus through the Celebrate Recovery community. Because as I have shared, it really does bring help, healing, freedom, and victory, and hope for any and all life's hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And if you're nervous, or doubtful, or whatever, I encourage you to be like Marcus. Take a deep breath and with a godly confidence, say, let's do this. My name is Josh. Thank you for letting me share.
0: Hey, friend. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it and would like to connect and learn more, join our community on Facebook at Anchored In Always. I will put the group link in the show notes. You can also email me at katie at anchoredinalways.com. Lastly, I want to bring this message of hope and healing to as many hurting people as possible. So help me spread the love by sharing this podcast on your social media outlets. Another way you can do this is to take a quick minute and subscribe and leave me a review. Thank you for anchoring in with me today. God bless you as you weather your storms.